All right, everybody, as I teased in the earlier segment, Rob is here to discuss the action movies of 1981. Obviously, we can't discuss all of them because we're starting to gear up. The 80s is going to be loaded to the gills with great action films. So we only pick four. Some were unsuccessful, some are forgotten, some aren't that great, but there's something unique about each one of them that we want to discuss. And the first one on our list, Rob, this is the one we got confused about. Escape from New York or Eye for an Eye. For some reason, I could never get my list straight, and it's Eye for an Eye, which we both watched, I think, yesterday <laughs> at the last minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, I uh, think it's the only Chuck Norris movie I've never seen, I think. Uh, maybe I haven't seen Forest Warrior. Huh. But um, somehow I, I, I swore I had seen this, and I kept looking at the cast going, no, this has never hit my eyes before. <laughs> That's actually what happened to me. Um, years, years, years ago, I uh, I was um, in my local video store, and I had seen a copy of it, and I was, oh, I, I remember this movie. I love this movie because I was convinced I had seen it years, years ago um, as, as a child on television. So I, I buy it, and I take it home, and I watch it, and immediately I'm like, wait, this, this, is, this is wrong. This is, something's wrong. This is not the movie I remember. Did they accidentally put the wrong movie in there? But uh, no, they didn't. Uh, it was my mistake. I'm a dumbass. The movie I was thinking of was A Force of One. <laughs> I, I totally... Because, I mean, they do kind of sound similar, you know. Yeah, well, uh, this is the era of Chuck Norris I'm not too experienced with. For me, uh, the only movie I'd ever seen was The Octagon because they were always airing it on that... I think everybody had that one, at least one local station that wasn't affiliated with the network back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, we always had uh, 55, which later became Fox 55. But 55 was owned by one dude. It wasn't owned by a corporation. All he could afford was like the cheap package of movies. So the best he could get were like the Conan, or not Conan, sorry, Canon films. And uh, mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I saw a lot of real schlocky stuff. And I think that's why I have such a soft spot in my heart for it. But um, Octagon I've seen quite a few times and the rest of them all seem like the, I, I can't differentiate much like uh, A Force of One Good Guys Were Black uh, the only ones I can tell you are the two tail ends before uh, Canon Pictures took over as Lone Wolf McQuaid and Breaker Breaker because they're so different right right absolutely speaking of Lone Wolf McQuaid that was uh, also um, the, the, the director of that Steve Carver also directed an eye for an eye so that was like kind of their, their their union, and basically, you know, their their more successful one, because that's probably considered one of the most iconic Chuck movies. You know, with you know, it makes sense too because that movie's so awesome. Yeah, but uh, I yeah, think, um, I think Steve Carver is a great so, director who never really got his due. He is. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. It, um, it kind of fell by the wayside, and that's a shame too because he he has a lot of great movies under his belt. Um. One of my personal favorites is a Bulletproof with yes. Gary Busey. Totally love that movie. <laughs> Your worst nightmare, Butthorn. <laughs> 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 I, I, I love Bulletproof, but uh, yeah, going into um, uh, an eye for an eye, uh, I had just by I'd say discovered it by complete accident, and uh, I thoroughly enjoy. It kind of feels like almost like Chuck's version of a Bond movie. I can see that like, international you know, espionage kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then of course you have uh, um, Christopher Lee as the villain. And you see me very 
Bond villainish in, in his portrayal too with you know he's got his suave mustache and his suits and you know he's got the the the, the henchman the in a the the legendary um uh professor tanaka the who's uh sub zero from uh, of course from the running man i always think of the perfect weapon oh yeah 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 funnily enough it um you could say the 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 fight scene in the perfect the, the last fight in the perfect weapon is almost kind of like a remake of the last fight in this movie uh-huh. where uh you know the, he he's trying his best to just you know beat the shit out of this guy and it's having no effect until for some reason or another it has enough starts having an effect, which you know is like that in a lot of these martial arts thrillers I could not the, uh, tell you what this movie's about. <laughs> um, uh, um, Chuck Norris is a cop. Sean Kane his 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 partner, uh, Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's movie. Terry Kaiser, the that's how I remember his name. Because, uh, he was Bernie in Weekend at Bernie's. Uh, they're they're undercover in a heroin investigation, and uh, they get set up, and Bernie gets killed, and then. Uh, his girlfriend was a reporter, and then she gets killed, you know, investigating. So uh, Chuck Norris decides to do his own personal investigation because he leaves the force, you know, decides to go with his own brand of vigilante justice. And um, uh, they find out, spoiler alert for like a 40-year-old movie, um, Christopher Lee, who was the reporter girlfriend's boss, is... And like in cahoots with like drug dealing, he's like a the, the head of a uh, news corporation, but he's also a drug dealer on the side. And uh, his his henchman is Professor Tanaka, and he snaps necks with one hand. <laughs> and it's just <laughs> it's just it's just it's like yeah, it's 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 not a memorable story, but uh, it's it's you know I I found it to be a heavily enjoyable action. Yeah, flick, well know, I think the action the early days of it's so weird when I think about uh, Chuck Norris movies I don't think of the martial arts because I feel like the years of canon pictures uh, put guns in his hands and took away a lot of the martial arts. You'll do a kick or a punch here and there, but this is really full on martial arts, and I forgot how good he was. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Um, like because we were still in the early part of Chuck's career when he was still making movies like you know Breaker Breaker and The Octagon and The Force of One and Force Vengeance. And uh, he was still heavily into martial arts guy before, you know, he started branching off and, you know, getting more into the... It started with Lone Wolf McQuaid, and then he started messing with Cannon, and then he just became machine gun guy. Right. You know. And, and like, Silent you know, Rage, mich- for some reason, that weird hard tangent in his career, which he did three times. Hellbound... Yes. Uh, Hero in the Terror and Silent Rage are his weird th- and they were never successful so I wonder why he did three of them you think after the first he's like no nah, I'm good Silent Rage didn't do very well forget it yeah that, that, that that's true I actually I remember I actually had a discussion about that recently uh, on another podcast where um, we were talking about uh, well my, my part of the discussion was uh, horror and action you know and uh, I mentioned how it's like Chuck seemed to have this weird thing where it's like he wants to mix action and horror because he did it three times, you know. Uh, Silent Rage is basically him versus Michael Myers, and then he kind of broadened his horizon with Hero and the Terror where he tried to make it more dramatic. 
as well as horror and action. And then he full he, he goes practically full on horror with Hellbound because you know you got demons and Satan and all right. That stuff. So yeah, like Chuck Chuck really you know he was really trying to die on that hill with the mixing action and horror. You know, and I guess after Hellbound he said you know to hell with it. I'm not trying this. Well, also no one would sign him because Canon Pictures was done by then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I see. Here's the thing: I, I, there is an era of Avco Embassy ruling the independent world. From like 1980 <laughs> to 85, they were just chalking out the best movies, and I'm always shocked. They almost all made a profit, and yet never made a sequel. There have been sequels to these movies, but it was after Avco Embassy shut down and sold the rights to the the sequels. Yeah, that's weird, right? Yeah, they. Yeah, absolutely. They had a a real slew of uh, awesome movies. Of course, they did the Fog, Escape from New York, as well. And, excuse me, the um, Phantasm, which is one of my personal favorites. And uh, I think the, they also released the first Howling as yep. well. And uh, yeah, like you know, considering how many classics they put out, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's kind of kind of weird, touchy thing. Yeah, it just wasn't their goal. It's 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 kind of unusual though, because you would think a, a studio wants to stay alive, that they would want yeah. it. To, well, here's the same thing though. Um, was it Norman Lear owned Embassy, and um, I think that he was getting older and he just wanted to sell it off, and that's why he never bothered. He was never interested in sequels in the first place, but he's also not a, a company that was like on its last legs that needed to make a profit. I think he just sold the mm-hmm. entire catalog and shut everything down when he hit his seventies. Yeah. But uh, this, and I've always been confused. Uh, the second movie I want to discuss is Southern Comfort, which is also another yes. Avco Embassy film. I thought, I'm lost a little bit on this one. On video, it was from Embassy Entertainment. But mm-hmm. it says Cinema Group when I watched this last time, and I vaguely remember that company. So did Avco put this in theaters? Do you know? Um, I, I know uh, that... Uh, it was uh, Walter Hill and, and David uh, Giller, his, his producing partner. They had a deal at 20th Century Fox, which is um, which is where they made they produced Alien, and um, they had uh, a deal to put in another movie, but and they wanted to do Southern Comfort, and 20th Century Fox did not want. They were like, no, no, we don't want, we don't want this. But they felt very strongly about the project, and I know they had a, a independent investor come in, and he was like, "Hey, what I want to do, I'll pay for it." And you know, you do the movie. So I know it was like, like distributed by 20th Century Fox. But after that, I, I have no idea what happened to like you know the distribution rights afterwards because um, I also have the movie on DVD, and the DVD is distributed by MGM. Yeah, and then. Well, okay, so have you noticed that all the MGM is starting to pull their catalog from everybody? I, I saw it on Kino yes. and Shout Factory starting to pull it, and I'm wondering what they're going to do. They're going to sell. I've heard rumors they're going to sell everything to Netflix, but Netflix doesn't do home video, so that seems like a terrible idea. These movies are going to be lost. But yeah. uh, hold on, I have it. I think it's Studio Canal owns Southern Comfort. That's why it hasn't left Shout Factory. I know we're on the air. This is embarrassing. Yeah, it's Studio <laughs> Canal. Shut up! <laughs> if anybody has a problem with this, you've all done this. Um, Studio Canal owns the rights, which has the entire Avco Embassy catalog, 
and the Sherwood catalog, which they did Mr. Mom and Buck Ruban's Eye. So I think those are mm-hmm. independent of MGM. It's just MGM had the distribution deal for that, that time period. Yeah. That's a weird one because now Fox owns part of MGM's catalog too because I've seen sets where it's like Escape from New York and then uh, <laughs> Delta Force. You're like, what? That's a weird combo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the 20th Century Fox uh, has released a lot of MGM's stuff. I'm wondering where it's going to go now, being that the 20th Century Fox is owned by Disney. So. Yeah, and then what's happening to Fox's catalog? That's what disturbs me is their stuff, their own stuff. Disney doesn't give a shit about mm-hmm. Die Hard. Are they just trying to replace... No. Okay, so this is really a tangent here, but this is what I'm thinking. Disney no longer has Touchstone Pictures or Hollywood Pictures, Dimension, uh, Miramax. Nothing is feeding the alternative audience. And I think they saw the writings of the wall that there's only so far they're going to be able to go with Marvel and Star Wars before they start to dip down at the box office. They have to have somewhere mm. to pivot. So I think that we're going to we're, we're going to see like this is the last decade of Disney dominating, and they're going to have to have the backup plan for twenty twenty nine through you know whatever, and they're going to need yeah. the adult divisions to cushion the blow of people no longer interested in anything that they bought because <laughs> there's only so many movies you can remake and adapt and. Clearly, no one cares about the Muppets anymore, which sucks. But yeah, I think that's what's yeah. going to happen to the Fox catalog is that they're going to change their mind and start focusing on the mature stuff. Absolutely. But uh, back to Southern Comfort, I believe it's Walter Hill's finest movie, and it's sad to see that it's one of his most <laughs> unsuccessful movies. Wow, that's a hot take. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm more privy to Streets of Fire, but. Um... It's definitely one of his strongest movies. Like, the, uh, considering the cast too, like the cast is, I think, is what puts the movie over for me. Yeah, one of his strongest movies. And what's this the craziest thing a, is that the only name in this at the time was Keith Carradine. So, mm-hmm. uh, it must have been a hard sell. But I'm going to tell you right now, I think the reason that no studio wanted to touch this was the final sequence when they got the pig for real. I mean, it's fucking horrible. I, it's very, very hard for me yeah. to take, and I still disagree. I get his point, but I also get that he could have cut away. He could have insinuated. You don't need to do that. Right, you know. I mean, but, you know, this was the time of, like, you know, hardcore American directors. Look at the the, the, the ending to um, Apocalypse Now. True. Uh, De Palma was always trying yeah, to push dip. to get real sex in movies. So I guess the 70s and yeah. 80s were really when these directors were trying to push the limits. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, oh, particularly uh, William Friedkin and Cruising, where he actually oh, had uh, yeah. actual subliminal shots of a hardcore gay porno inserted into the, to the movie. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, he, it, it's it's in there, you know. It's it's a little less subliminal than like you know the subliminal shots in uh, the Exorcist, you know, of Captain Howdy. It's, it's there, you know, and uh, you know, like I said, you know, American filmmakers back in the day just did not give a shit. You know, they would go all out there. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned cruising, and I think that's the first time Powers Booth had ever shown up on the big screen. And you're talking a year later, he is now starring in. Uh, a legendary action film and he's the co-lead he was a complete nobody most of these guys were nobodies but uh, they would become faces you would see constantly through the 80s yeah absolutely you know you had uh, uh, of course you know Keith Carradine was a star and then you had Bruce Booth but you also had Fred Ward T.K. Carter Peter Coyote you know like just like 
this is the, uh, Brian James in there. Oh yeah, uh, the, Lewis the Smith, who was in Buckaroo Banzai and The Heavenly Kid. Yeah. Oh yeah, one of my personal favorites, The Heavenly Kid. Um, I always, I always, you know, the, every time I, I watch Southern Comfort, it's just like, hey, <laughs> I know you. But uh, he's completely like, if if you enjoy the him and the Heavenly Kid. <laughs> You're, you're not gonna have a good time with him in this movie. No, no. Well, here's what's interesting: he is, is a schmuck. It's um, nobody is really. Uh, everybody's very complicated in this. The people who are the mm-hmm. honest heroes, which there's very few of them that are the straight up heroes, uh, they're complicated. You're not sure if they are good for a while or not. Uh, you know, they take out the only person who is really like in charge, Peter Coyote, which shocked me the first time. They take him out after 15 mm-hmm. minutes. And then you all have Casper, um, who knows what he's supposed to do, but for some reason he's collapsing under the pressure. And yeah. he doesn't have the knowledge and the history the way that Poole had it. And it, I think, I think I don't know who the actor is, and I don't know what he did before or after this, but I thought the guy who played Casper was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of like a, a persecutor to, um, to Gorman and Aliens. Yeah, um, you know the, the inexperienced. You know he he knows his stuff, but he's so inexperienced, and you know just a serious lack of confidence. Where it's just like, you know, you, you're gonna get us all fucking killed if you know we leave you in charge. Right. Well, what he knows and, in the book uh, doesn't work out in the real world. Right, right, right. You know, the, the Keith Carradine's character specifically says to him, like, you know, you keep reciting the manual to us is not gonna get us anywhere. You know. Yeah, and, and uh, no, go ahead. Oh, I, this is more than just an action movie. This is survival horror. I mean, this yeah. is truly yeah, a thrilling, absolutely. horrifying, terrifying film at times. Yeah, like totally. You know, it's 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 a film that's just kind of almost drenched in tension and dread, like yeah. you know, which is one of my favorite things about movies. So you know, what I'm saying like. A movie where you just completely dreading like what happens next, and, they get, and uh, like uh, that's perfectly encapsulated. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Ten Little Indians where they get picked off one by one. You don't know who's next. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then like you know, not only that, but then they have to contend with each other because they all breaking apart. You know, just on the part all under all this you know pressure of like having the Cajuns um, uh, hunting them down and this. The crazy thing about it is, like, what you said, like, you know, it, this is a complicated issue with complicated characters, and it's, like, it's kind of their fault, you know, because they steal the canoes, and then uh, you have this asshole shooting blanks at them, you know, so it's, like, it's kind of their own fault that they're in this situation, you know, but they're in the situation nevertheless, and, you know, they have to figure out how to get out of it, and how to get away, and how to survive, and then, like, you know, they have no idea how to, you know run the land, you know, they're sitting there just trying to figure this all out as they go, they have an inexperienced, you know, guy leading them, so it's just, you know, a big old clusterfuck from the beginning. Yeah. Well, and, and, and a couple of people die by their own hands, like their own stupidity. Uh, they don't get taken mm-hmm. out by cages. We got one guy who drowns in uh, fucking quicksand. We got uh, Fred yeah. Ward, and oh, that is one hell of a fight. Fred Ward and the Powers Booth, two gigantic men, uh, forces of nature yeah. going at each other with in a knife battle. Uh, and then, yeah, absolutely. What's the guy from uh, In He the Night? He was the uh, Alan Autry, the the fo- former football player. Um, 
he just loses his fucking mind. Yeah, absolutely. He just he goes nuts. Uh, he 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 paints the the red cross on his chest and uh, he blows up the cage, the one armed cage of Brian James uh, shit. Excuse me. And like you know, it, it gets to the point where he becomes almost like catatonic, a vegetable. You know, they were and like he's such they they feel he's such a danger to them. They have to tie him up to the tree, you know, in order for them to feel at least a little safe because he's like he's no good to us, right? But he's big, you know. He's scary, you know. We're gonna have to tie him up. Yeah, it's Walter Hill has said this was never a metaphor for what was going on in Vietnam at the time. You know, the Cajun standing right. for the Viet Cong. Mm-hmm. Is I know that wasn't ever his intention, but I think since, especially for our age group, where we saw it way after and we never experienced that era, how we perceive the metaphor. Uh, is kind of out of his control. He didn't intend it to be that way, but yeah. it, it's hard not to see the comparison. Right, and the the, the same thing with uh, aliens. Although I think um, with aliens, it, it was kind of, there kind of was an inspiration on James Cameron's part. Walter Hill was just like you know that's purely you know unintentional. The the you know the parallels you find in you know what happens in the movie and then with the the, the Vietnam conflict, you know, I could see it, you know, but I could also understand, like, you know, what he's saying, like, I, I didn't mean it, you know, I was just trying to do, like, you know, a scary survival gripping action movie, and, and it just, it, you know, it just kind of, you know, seemed like, you know, it kind of drew inspiration from the Vietnam conflict. Yeah, it's it's a truly fascinating film. The ending is one to truly remember. It's it, the building of yeah. tension using Cajun music in this jovial event that's going on in the forefront, uh, and then what's going on behind that. The two balancing together, it shouldn't work, but it does. Ry Cooter's music is so fucking good, and I think Ry Cooter's kind of a guy that's yeah. forgotten now with when it comes to movie uh, movie scores. Yeah, like you know, Ry Cooter. Uh, um is Walter Hill's personal favorite? Like you know, it, it seems like he would he would hire some a composer to compose the music and wouldn't like it, and then just immediately just I'm just gonna go with Ryan Cooper. <laughs> you know? He he did that a few times. I know there's a few times where he hired a composer, fired him, and then just went to Ryan Cooper. So it's like. Why did you just hire Raccoon to be? Yeah, well, because the studio. It's probably the studio dictating you got to get this guy. And uh, I can see why Walter right. likes to go in. I'd see that like a lot of directors, sometimes they need a break. You know, I understand why John Carpenter broke away after Big Trouble Little China to go make uh, They Live and Prince of Darkness because Alive Films gave him a small budget, but they left him the hell alone to do whatever he wanted to. Right, right. And um, I, Walter yeah, does that from time yeah, to time. Hill, yeah, in Walter Hill's case, though. Um, he he got he got lucky in that um, he was a producer on uh, Alien and Alien and Aliens you know made so much money that he could kind of just like you know he could take those hits you know what I'm saying like you know a hit like you know on Southern Comfort which unfortunately you know was very unsuccessful at the box office and uh, Streets of Fire as well you know which was unsuccessful you know that stuff and. He could take those hits though because he's he's still spending alien money. Yeah. You know? So he could he could he could do he could an experiment, you know. But like, you know, the studio still mess with him from time to time like they did on uh, Last Man Standing, uh, his uh, supernova 
Oh my so god. I can see why he's a, yeah. <laughs> the movie that definitely got away from him. Yeah, yeah, totally. A movie that uh where they, they had to invent a new a new uh uh, uh synonym to um for directors who want to take their name off of it. All right, cuz they couldn't use um uh Alan Smithy. Thank you, Alan Smithy. Um yeah. But yeah, uh, I can see why being so complicated Lee. for him. What? That the thing was uh, Thomas Lee that they used on Supernova. Oh, okay. But but uh, for the coincidence, they never used again. Really? It was only used on Supernova. Yeah, I've never seen Thomas Lee used again. Actually, I haven't seen any of those uh, pseudonyms used anymore. They maybe made a ruling because right. if you saw the name, yeah. that you would automatically think, "Oh, this is a stinker. Don't go see it." So the studio said, you know, like nix that idea. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that might be the case. You know, this is a, you know, a, a, the signal that you know the movie was messed with behind the scenes, and it, it's, it has a good chance of being a piece of shit. So uh, let's not do that anymore. <laughs> uh, speaking of independent movies, this is one that's kind of been lost to time, and I have no idea why. It's public domain. The studio it said the studio went out of business, but I looked this up. And it was a Hemdale production, which they were on their way to do Terminator a few years down the road, and Virgin Films, which Virgin did movies way after. So I don't know who the distributor originally was, but this is the kind of movie that's so fucking entertaining, and yet it's only available in some of the shittiest copies you've ever viewed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Fucking VHS garbage. Absolutely. Someone's got to find the original print and clean this up. Were you um, apprehensive when I suggested this one? I know. Um, I figured since you, it was your suggestion that you know it obviously had some merits, but um, I watched it and uh, just like you said, is I was so entertained by this movie. Like this, this was just like it was like I've never heard of this movie before when you suggested it, and then after I finished watching, I was like, why aren't we more talking about this movie? Right. This movie is so much fun. Yeah, it's uh, what's that movie that came out a few years ago with uh, Ben Affleck and? Uh, oh, that Charlie. was uh, that was a uh, Triple Frontier. Triple that, Frontier, uh, isn't this a... like the Triple Frontier if they didn't really know what they were doing? Uh, like yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I was thinking as I was watching this, I was like, uh, I I I think the the producers of High Risk should get their legal team involved because somebody was clearly inspired. When they when they made Triple Frontier, like like it was they like just almost like really closely you know what I'm saying uh, uh, mirroring the events of High Risk to the point where it's like there's only like like different like s- certain differences but not really you know like the difference in Triple Frontier and this is that uh, obviously the tone is a lot darker and grittier Triple Frontier it's a lot longer I think by like a half an hour. And um, the main friends are military, they were ex-special forces, but it's pretty much the same story. Yeah, it's it's so close to it, it's shocking. Yes, yes, yes. So I was like, the uh, producers of High Risk, you may want to contact your legal team because <laughs> I, think you, I think someone over there has closely just ripped you off. Like, really badly. Yeah. The, okay, so the main difference in this one is, like, there are four regular Joes who kind of can take care of themselves. I don't know if they're ex-Vietnam. I missed that part. 
Um, they kind of know what they're doing, but they're not professionals. And they're getting older, so they're kind of out of the uh, the loop of, well, this is say they're not fit as they should be for something like this. Um, it, this is during the uh, economic crisis of the late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. and they're going broke, and they decide to go uh, – they fake a fishing trip, and they're going down to Columbia because James Brolin has a hot tip on a drug lord who is easy to get to. And they're going to steal all his money. And then it's just this breakneck escape plan that keeps going wrong, keeps going wrong. They get, te- they, you know, they get split up, they get captured, and you know, one person escapes and the other one gets captured. And it's just them trying to survive and get the hell out of there. And I just thought it was truly entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. Like the whole sequence where they, they have to bribe the little boy to pass him the chain. To, to, to the point where like they have to give up their clothes <laughs> to escape the cell, and then they're running through the streets uh, uh, like in their underwear is just like that was the point where I, where uh, I I you know I reached in the movie where I was like wow this movie's so great why haven't I heard about this before this movie's great yeah, we have uh, we have Bruce Davison Cleavon Little and I feel like the world didn't get did not get enough Cleavon Little. I, I feel like we were uh, yes. robbed of so many great performances. And I don't think he ever really did an action movie. You can count Blazing Saddles as a guy with a gun, but it's not an action movie. This, he's convincing. Right. And uh, a guy I think we forget about is Chick Venera, who I think is pretty good in this. But I think most of his career was low-budget directed video movies, usually like, you know, uh, Andrew Stevens kind of movies. Mm-hmm. Who else yeah, we have? Yeah, like, um, duh, we have, uh, you know, James, um, James Brolin, you have James Coburn, you have Anthony Quinn, uh, Lindsay Wagner, and, and it's like, wow, like, you know, this this is a front-loaded cast. Yeah. Oh, and Ernest Borgnine, you know? I forgot, it's a pilot that gets them in and out. A lot of these guys yeah, are, yeah, yeah. Ernest, they're only in it for like a two- or three-day shoot. Ernest shows up for like, yeah. yeah, he shows up like, like for five minutes, you know, it was obviously, he was on set for like, he must have been on set for maybe 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> <laughs> like that. That's a, that's how minuscule his scene is. I mean, but you know, it's Ernest Borgnine. He he gives that old you know professional, you know, feel to the movie. You know, where he shows the guys how to shoot the guns properly, and then uh, Coburn is probably was on on set from looked like a day. Yeah, it's mostly uh, Anthony Quinn. Anthony Quinn's like the head of this rebel group that wants the money and uh, the guns and stuff like that, and he's. He's he's complicated because he's an adversary, but at the same time he kind of respects what they're doing and he's playing with them a lot. He's like, no, seriously, I'll stop shooting if you just give me. You know, <laughs> I really like Anthony Quinn in this. Right, like I, I was surprised how large his role in the movie was because I figured that once he showed up, I was going to be the same thing. He's, he's going to be in this for five minutes and then he's going to be gone. But he his role was pretty substantial. Like he when he shows up, he's kind of in it till the end. Yeah, like, the, I mean he. He literally is the final shot of the movie. What what I miss about some of these older movies when they would bring the aging stars in for a couple days shoot is I feel like the actors still gave a shit. They gave a great performance. What I see now is, oh, this will sell an international market so much. Let's, let's, let's pay Bruce Willis a million dollars for two days of shooting where he won't give a shit. Uh, and we'll put him first name, you know. And now Stallone's in that world doing those. I just, I fucking hate it when they just come in for a big chunk of cash and don't care. Right, right. Like you can see they're bored. They don't give a shit. You know, they they literally look like they're just waiting, you know, for it to be done so they could get their check and leave for the day. Yeah. You know, 
I think that, you know, with the difference is that, you know, even how, like, you know, shoddy the production might be or, like, you know, whatever. I'm not saying that this was the case with High Risk because, you know, this was very well-made movie as well. But um, they just, like, you know, actors like that, they're more professional, you know, where they were just like, I'm going to give 110% even though this this movie's just, you know, is probably going to be a piece of shit. Like Cameron Mitchell is probably the perfect example of that. You Cameron definitely. Mitchell's made many pieces of shit in his, in his time. But, like, he always gave his, his full-on, you know, attention, you know. He didn't try to, like, shortchange them by being all lazy, you know. There, there were many movies where it's like, you know, you, you're, you're so much better than this. Oh, yeah, you David Carradine's the king of that. You're so much better than this, David. Why are you just doing... Oh, God. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I know a few movies where it's like, oh, David, why? Yeah. Why? But I think the best part of this is, like Southern Comfort, you can see it's really them going through hell filming this movie. Um, I'm yeah. guaranteeing every single person in this movie that was in the action sequence that was, was bruised to shit. And it was also more realistic in the fact that the heroes take their rounds. They get hit. They get, you know, and we, we believe a couple of them are dead for a while. And mm-hmm. that ending, and we're going to ruin it right now, that ending is one of the best. It's two uh, Rolling Stones blasting on the speakers. They, they, they mm. get on that plane, they're shooting their way out, and they save the dog. I love it. Yeah, that was great. Like, you know, like, like you know, the, the uh, you know, the, the spoiler ending, you know, um, you know, they're, 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 they're cornered, you know, like, oh, you know, it all seems uh, pointless now, like they're all going to die, you know. And, and you know, like, you know, in these movies, they're going to get saved. And you wait for it. But you don't expect the fucking plane to show up blasting satisfaction with a machine gun, you know, sitting there just blowing the cars up. And it's like, oh, yeah. And then, you know, they saved their buddy. And then just like you said, dog, come on, come on, doggy, come on, come on. Blasted plane is getting away. And it's like, oh, my God, this is so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I had the money, I would do everything I could to find an original print of this and, you know, try to clean yeah. it up. And, you know, most of the cast is still around. I, yeah, most of the cast is still around, and I, I think that they would love to revisit this. I don't get how James Brolin's career went the way it did because he comes off Capricorn 1 and Amityville Horror. Um, Amityville? Amityville Horror, and they're both huge hits. And then he does Night of the yes. Juggler and this. And they both bomb. Though, Night of the Juggler is great as well. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then um, I, did, I didn't know this. I was wondering why he went and did Hotel. And I was uh, listening to an interview with Josh Brolin in that his family wasn't a lot of trouble around this time. And that his father purposely stopped making movies and did the show so that he could stay in L.A. with his family. Right. Yeah, I got to respect that. Yeah, absolutely, totally, totally. Um, yeah, like, you know, Brolin, uh, I, I've had many conversations about, you know, the, the, the Brolin and James and Josh. It, it's, it's weird, too, because, you know, James was such a strong leading man and actor, particularly in this one. Like, he's, he's very strong as, you know, the lead guy, you know. And uh, it's, it's, it's curious that, you know, he never achieved that level of fame that, like, it seems Josh uh, Brolin has now. Like Josh Brolin's just such a, you know, great commanding star, you know, 
like 2018 was the summer of Josh Brolin. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and it seems like like you know what happened. Yeah, what happened with James? You know, what I'm saying because he seemed you know to be just as good. You know, and it, it's a shame that he didn't get to. He's he's more now prominently known as Barbara Streisand's husband. Yeah, but I think I think he's uh, I think the last decade or so he's shown that he can be funny. And he had that show Life in Pieces yeah. for like four or five seasons. So I think he's reconstructed his career. I, I knew he had a sense of humor when he showed up in Pee Wee's Big Adventure as Pee Wee. Yeah. <laughs> P.W. Herman. <laughs> That's right. My favorite from that, I'll get on the intercom sometimes at work and go, Baging Mr. Herman. Baging Mr. Herman. <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect, too. That was perfect. Um, I heard rumors that he almost ended up as James Bond. Like, he was really in contention around 81. Really? Yeah, wow, that he did a screen a... test, and they were uh, having discussions with him. But, you know, Roger Moore, same thing when uh, happened to um, Pierce Brosnan. Roger Moore came back one more time and one more time. Yeah. yeah. What did I say? Did I say Pierce Brosnan? No, uh, it was... No, I did say it, Roger Moore. Sorry, I'm starting to get kind of punchy. It's been a lot of talking the last two hours. <laughs> nah, it's all good. <laughs> I think I said something that made sense there. I'm going to pretend I did and move on. What is our last film? <laughs> uh, of course, we have to go with uh, the the classic. Um, the you know a lot of on a lot of lists uh, as the greatest action movie of all time. I would dispute that, but I you know is definitely on that list. The the legendary Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, I, it may not just be the most... In, hmm, I think it changed the language of action films. Because there's yes. there's certain ones that have changed it. So, of course, Goldfinger being the standard for most of the 60s. And then in the mm-hmm. 70s, action movies kind of got changed by Dirty Harry. Um, but all yeah. of them are kind of slower paced. And the lots of talking. What, what um, Raiders of the Lost Ark did was we got to have a thing here and a thing here every 10, 20 minutes like the serials did, and it changed the language so the kids now are expecting something every 10 minutes. Uh, and then Die yeah. Hard changed it again by not just making it every 10 minutes, like just making this chaos build. Like it never really stops. It only takes a breather, and it just keeps building and building to crazy, crazy, crazy. And I think mm-hmm. those are the gold Absolutely. standards of all action films. Yeah, totally, totally. It's... um. Their their love for you know George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, their love for serials really shows in how the proceedings go. You know what I'm saying? Because it's just like you know ch- you know thrills and chills and spills, like you said, every ten minutes. You know, and uh, also he he kind of like Indiana Jones kind of like you know changed the face of action heroes in that he was more like you know this agile, like you know most men that times are like. Like you said, from the 70s after Dirty Harry, they were stationary tough guys, you know. Yeah, like they, they, shoot, they hardly ever ran. Gun, they just shoot. pointed their gun, yeah, and then they were usually silent. You know, they spoke very few words, right. but and they had no charisma usually. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, totally. You know, I mean, with the exception of uh, uh, Eastwood and Bronson, you know, like most, most of those tough guys at that era were like, eh. But, like, you know, you got Harrison Ford in there who's just... You know, just the picture of charisma. You know, like he could he could sit there silent as much as he wants. You know, he just has charisma oozing out the pores. Yeah. And then he's running and he's jumping and he's fighting all over the place. You know, it's just nonstop sweaty thrill ride. And like, yeah, like like I said, like I I'm one of those points. Like I feel like 
like Die Hard is the gold standard of like what action movies should be. But I don't really argue with it when people say like they they go with Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, I could definitely see it. I mean, I choose differently, but I could definitely see where you're coming from in that statement. What is your favorite sequel? Uh, uh, with with what within the franchise? Yeah. Um, totally Temple of Doom. Yeah, I that one horrified me. I have so much fun watching Last Crusade, and I know it's not critically well received, but the chemistry that he has with Sean Connery, and it kind of gets back to the tone and the language of the first movie. Temple of Doom feels a little bit different, a little more melancholy and darker, and I get I get the appeal of it. It's great, and we never talk about Part Four. Part Four doesn't exist. Shut up. <laughs> it's like the Fifth no, Die Hard. It doesn't no, happen. No, Didn't no. it? Never happened. <laughs> we, we 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 won't acknowledge the the, the sour spot that is uh, Crystal Skull. Yeah, well, it, 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 what's five going to be? What's what's part five going to be? He's going to be eighty years old, and and they're going to try. Yeah. Are they going to digitally map his face on a younger actor? Don't do that, please. There's only one way. I, I, How would you continue a part I, five? I, I I would just go the what they did with the the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. You know, I mean, it's hard to think you know of somebody other than a. Uh, Forward playing indie, but I think Sean Patrick Flannery did a good job even back then playing you know a young Indiana Jones and maybe I know that uh, there was rumors going around that you know they were going to get Chris Pratt to play young indie. I think to the point where even Steven Spielberg was like excited about that thought, like hey, you know, I, I come back to direct if uh, you get Chris Pratt in there as young indie. Yeah, but he's moved on, right? James Mangold is now in charge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good but, choice. Uh, we'll, we'll see, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Mangold is a is a very good director. You know, Logan, obviously, you know, being the perfect example of his talent and identity, because I'm a big fan of identity. Yeah. Well, I don't think he, the only movie he made, I think, that was kind of so so was Night and Day. But he's never directed a bad movie, and each movie is so wildly different. He's really building up his skills for you know making a massive movie like a new Indiana Jones. And in my opinion, there's only one way you can do a new Indiana Jones movie and pass off the torch. <clears throat> Pitch meeting. Knock, knock, knock. Huh. Are you going to let me in? <laughs> I'm going to pitch my meeting. <laughs> You're the agent. I'm pitching my oh, yeah, idea. No. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. I was, uh, I was uh, um, distracted for a second. Come right in. Come right in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so here's my pitch for the new Indiana Jones. It opens up in a bar, and there's guys at the bar getting drunk, and they're telling legendary stories of a man named Indiana Jones. And of the three guys at the bar, they each have their own story. So Guy Ace tells the first story, and it stars a Chris Evans, or, you know, I've seen all the Chris, Chris's. Uh, and the second guy tells his story. It's an anthology, so each story's only a half hour long. And the second guy nice. tells a story, and it's starring Chris Pratt. And then the third guy tells a story, and it's Chris Hemsworth. And... I don't know if you want those guys actually sitting at the bar telling the story and they're perceiving themselves as Indiana Jones. But then at the end, mm-hmm. you have old Harrison Ford sitting up in the bar out of the darkness. He goes, kids, let me tell you what it was really like. And then you get one last story. But it's animated. <laughs> okay, maybe not that. Maybe that's going too far. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I blew the meeting. I'm getting kicked out of the office. <laughs> <laughs> No, I like that. Have, I, I, have I Lord totally and Miller direct the last segment. <laughs> I totally dig that idea. Like that, that, uh, 
you know, doing it as an anthology of like, you know, just, you know, the awesome like Indiana Jones adventures like that. I totally dig that. I could I could see that working. I, I, I you know, wait in line to see that. Because yeah, the only way, because there's nobody that will fulfill Harrison Ford. But it's kind of like the right. way Mad Max was in that it's now become myth and lore and that it goes beyond just what Mel Gibson's portrayal of what Mad Max is, is that Mad Max is like legendary throughout this entire universe and people are telling the right. stories but they perceive someone else in their head as uh, Max. Yeah, totally, totally. I, I agree, I agree. And uh, also, you just... Uh... I mean, like you said, it's it's hard to find anybody that just could match that level of charisma that Ford has. But I mean, I, there are actors out there, you know. Um, I know they they try their best to, to match it in that uh, solo uh, with the uh, I forget the Alden. Um, I can't remember. Elgenreich, Eldenreich. Yeah, I don't know something like that. Something like that, and he he was. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> like he was all right, but you know, like I said, it's hard to just. Ford was just a different breed, man. Like, yeah. He's just like you know, just with just very little, like you know, it's it's legendary how he states how shitty he thought the script for Star Wars was, but he he made Han Solo work, you know, despite it, you know. And yeah. th- I think that's what, you know, made him the star that he ultimately became was just because he was just it was just got through sheer talent and charisma. And well, yeah, it's gonna it, be hard to match that. Well and he proved himself beyond just being an action star. It's when he did witness and got Oscar nominated for that and it only has yeah. a little bit of action in it. You can see the direction he was trying to go. And I, I see why he takes breaks away from action movies, not just because he's getting older, but because he knew that action movies only have so much road well. Okay, tell Stallone that. He'll fucking tell you you're full of shit. <laughs> yeah. I'm 80. I don't care. Just glue my face back together. He looks like a zombie on the poster of the new Rambo, I'm telling you. He looks like the living dead. <laughs> um. I'm thinking of alternate worlds, though, because we do know about uh, Tom Selleck getting it taken away from him at the last minute. Why was CBS so short-sighted? Let him film the fucking movie and then go do the TV series. Do you realize how much bigger the show would have been if he had come off of a Raiders oh. of the Lost Ark? Totally, totally. But, uh, you know, I, I like, yeah, uh, uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword, you know what I'm saying? Because it's like, I, I love Tom Selleck. You know, I love Magnum P.I. I, I love uh, um, Three Men and a Baby. Runaway! You know, I, I, I love, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Can't forget Runaway. You know, I love the man, you know. And uh, I would have loved to have seen his interpretation of Indy. But it's kind of like, I'm okay with it because, you know, Ford was just absolute perfection. So it's like, you know, it, I, I would have loved to see Selleck, but I'm fine really if they're turning out the way that it is. Yeah, Plus, well, I'm yeah, sure Selleck's love, fine with it too because he has a career. He still acts on a regular, I mean, Blue Bloods has been on for, what, 15 fucking years? <laughs> he keeps making those Jesse Stone, he's not lacking for work. Oh, I love those Jesse Stone movies. I have all of them. I love Jesse wow, Stone Wow, how many are they up to? Like I wish nine? It, <laughs> uh, yeah, nine. Uh, they were supposed to make a ten, but they haven't made it yet. So I don't know if, like, you know, he's, he's done making Jesse Stone movies. 
Or like, you know, he's just looking for like, you know, them to give him the go ahead to make Yeah. It. Well, but, it would be cool uh, if, the, if the 10th one, one, if the 10th one was just called Jesse X. <laughs> <laughs> and he's in outer space. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. But uh, yeah, I love those movies. <laughs> There's been a murder at NASA. <laughs> I, I, I see it. I see it. <laughs> I totally see that. The um uh the other thing I was thinking about is the alternate world where George Lucas actually got the rights for Flash Gordon. He was struggling to get oh, yeah. them and they wouldn't give it over and therefore he created uh Star Wars and, and Indiana Jones. Now what if he had gotten to make Flash Gordon in, in the way he wanted to and it was successful? Would he have ever made Raiders Lost Ark? I'm not sure. Oh yeah. That is a good point. Or if 1941 you know, that, that hadn't a... flopped. If Spielberg wasn't so fucking hungry after 1941 that he busted his ass for... T- and I, I can't believe they made it for $20 million. I mean, this is nonstop. You know, there's something always on the screen happening or, you know, uh, some visual thing that cost a, t- a fortune. Uh, and they made it for $20 million, which no one believed they could do, and they just nail it out of the park, man. Yeah, totally, totally, absolutely. You know... It's just, uh, yeah, like, like that. Spielberg is always, you know, always surprised me as a filmmaker because you know, he he accomplished so much, but he still has that hunger to do more, you know, to just go beyond what he's already accomplished, you know. Like he just the man just does not rest on his laurels even to this day, right? You know. Well, right. everybody was saying that Ready Player One was he. Oh, he feels like he's out of touch with the modern generation. He needs to make a hip now movie, and I never saw it as that. I go, no, Spielberg saw this new technology that he could play with and to, and create a story yes. with that. And like Zemeckis, they're always trying to push the medium. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. That's a perfect. That's a perfect comparison. You know, they're always trying to just be at you know the, the forefront of what's new. You know what I'm saying? So. Like, you know, just be the complete filmmaker, you know, you know, in various stages of how filmmaking works and use utilize all utilizing all of the tools you know, to of the trade, you know, whether it's just, you know, back in the day where it's just, you know, actual, you know, real, you know, things happening, you know, or just digital, you know, with C G I and stuff. And they just able to just, you know, have this all at their disposal and do it, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, you know, I guess whenever the time comes and they're like, you know, it's, it's time to just settle down, retire, you know, it's, it's good to say, like, I did it all, you know? Yeah. And well, I mean, they also were smart enough and they didn't get played by the system. I'm not saying anything bad about some of the directors, but my two favorite directors are John Carpenter and Walter Hill. But I think that yeah. because they didn't embrace the next step, the next coming thing in filmmaking that they were frustrated and of course they had to deal with a lot of boneheaded executives that would get in their way oh yeah and I think that soured them on the whole thing and that's why they barely ever direct anything anymore right I, I think with, um, I, I like that you bring up both um, Carpenter and Hill because you know they kind of like I mean like their their careers are completely different you know like Carpenter is known as in the horror field even though I think he's He's beyond just a mere Harvard director. You know, he's just a massive filmmaker. Period, and uh, so is uh, Hill. Even though, like, he's most mostly known for his action films. Like, you know, they come from an era where they grew up on a certain film, like you know Howard Hawks movies, and you know, like those those old school westerns. So, like, they come from a different period where you know 
you know, like, you know, they just have, like, these hardened, complicated characters, and it's like, you know, as, you know, Hollywood went along, you know, it kind of went into, like, you know, people, like, you know, characters just being, like, very cookie-cutter. Right. The you know, 80s which, was very yeah, black and white. They didn't like the gray of the 70s, which would come, I think has come back yeah. lately on television is really gray in the last couple decades. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I remember uh, uh, on um, the, the special features of um, Prince of Darkness where Carpenter briefly discussed that, you know, like he likes to go at his own pace, you know, these complicated characters. He said, but movies... You know, they're all bebop now. He said, and that's all fine. That's all good. Life is good. But then he gives that smirk like, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think they're actually there that far apart from each other because um, Carpenter's always no. trying to fit Western feel. You know, he's, he's making a Western, but he's making a different genre. He's making, either making a siege movie like Rio Bravo or he's making like the Clint mm-hmm. Eastwood kind of movies like Escape from New York. Almost, uh, so many of his movies have a Western feel underneath it. But... Um, now, Walter Hill actually got to make westerns, but they both have that very long 2.35. They have great character actors all around. Everybody's gray. Um, they're more similar than people right. think, but yes, they, they almost always worked in different genres. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know uh, Walter Hill still contends to this day that he considers uh, Extreme Prejudice a western. Oh, I see it as a western. Know, yeah, totally. Like, yeah, it's, it's definitely a western, you know, with the. Uh, Especially with that ending, which is pure, purely out of the Wild Bunch, which is uh, I was watching uh, the ending to the Extreme Prejudice, and that's called. God, we need this on blue. Why can't we get this on Blu-ray? Besides Japan, later. Oh on yes, don't, don't even don't even get me started. Why we don't have a Blu-ray in the correct aspect ratio to yeah. of uh, Extreme Prejudice? Like, um, I, I go mad. Okay, so I saw recently that Studio Canal has been licensing out titles. Now, they've always had the same dozen titles from Caracol that they've licensed to Mm -hmm. Lionsgate, which we've seen a bazillion times in different iterations. But there was a handful of movies that Caracol was involved with with Seven Arts and a couple other companies that were never available. And I saw that uh, Iron Eagle 3, which is a co-production with uh, Seven Arts Mm -hmm. and Caracol, is now on Blu-ray. And something else recently... Damn it, I'm trying to remember. It was another one of those that's been lost forever. It's coming... Oh, Deep Star 6 is coming from Kino. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think Canal is starting to license out some of the titles that were lost, like Fright Night 2. God damn it, I want this on fucking Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, um, But Extreme, Pre- Extreme Prejudice is another one of those that was with Lionsgate for so long. Uh, Johnny Handsome. They're all full screen. They look like shit. So I'm hoping these are yeah. finally going over to Kino. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, yeah, Johnny Handsome is another one of the my favorite Walter Hill movies. Like, I, I, I cannot, like, I, the, if we ever do, like, you know, like, with 1989, we gotta talk to, uh, about Johnny Hanson. Gotta. Because I cannot, I, 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 I'll sit there and talk all day about how much I love Johnny Now, Hanson. have you seen it widescreen? Because um, I made the mistake of buying it on Voodoo when it was on sale, and I did not see that it was standard definition VHS copy. It looks like mud. I cannot see what's going yeah. on. I'm so annoyed. I think that um, there was a blue. I don't know if it was in the correct aspect ratio, but I think they cleaned it up slightly uh, when they reissued it on a Blu-ray after around the same time that The Expendables was coming yeah, out. Yeah, I feel like it was Angel Heart and Johnny Handsome, I think, on a set. Yeah, 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 totally. And um, 
I think they cleaned it up. I, I, I don't remember if it was in the correct aspect ratio. Yeah. But I know that they, they cleaned it up considerably. Um, but yeah, I, I need a front-loaded collector's edition. Totally. Especially with Nick Nolte still alive. We need to get a commentary track from him. Sadly, Powers Booth is gone, who is fucking rad! Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Power, Powers Booth is, uh, you know... That's, that's one of the ones that, you know... I'm, I'm bummed out by a lot of um, actors' deaths, and Powers Booth is definitely one of them. Yeah, Rapid Fire, dude. Extraordinary. Yeah, Rapid Fire. Um, uh, Sudden Death with uh, Jean Claude Van Damme. Oh yeah. Uh, he, yeah, he was fantastic in that. Um, even, even. Uh, um, I remember seeing him in. Uh, you ever saw MacGruber? Uh, uh, you know, I, I haven't seen this since it came out, but um, was he in Avengers too? I feel like he had a, a brief comeback when yes. he was in. He was in Deadwood, I think. And he started getting yeah, a lot of work. Did. Yeah, he uh, he played one of the I think the heads in uh, uh, the Avengers. Yeah. Well, but, uh, like yeah, like, he was he was a jack of all trades, and I'm just you know I'm just so sad to know that he's gone. Yeah, and we, we'll get to talk about it more this decade. So our next episode, we're almost to an hour now, so it's time to wrap things up. Uh, next episode yeah, will yeah. be about the action movies of 1982. What will we select, everybody? I don't know, Rob. We have to make a list and pick the uh, four uh, we want. Uh. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I I have an idea though, but uh, yeah, like you know, you never know. Like you know, keep it a surprise. E.T. We'll, we'll figure it oh. out. <laughs> <laughs> so much action. It's unbelievable. All right. So before we go, oh, let's get the plugs in. I need hair. I'm bald. I need hair plugs. Um, it's going to be a while, so it's going to be a lot of screaming, a lot of blood. Um, <laughs> that was stupid. I'm sorry. Rob, tell us yeah, where we can okay. find you outside of this podcast. Of course. You can find me uh, as the Cinema Drunkie on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find my numerous writing on action films at actionflex.com and ultimateactionmovies.com. You can find my horror writings on House of Tortured Souls. And you can find me on um, great, great horror podcast, The House That Screams, hosted by my good friend Candy Allison, as well as my, my, my baby, my magnum opus, Bros on the Bridge, a Star Trek podcast on me, my best friend, Big Mac. You know, we're on our fourth episode, and I'm really loving how it's turning out. So, yeah, um, those are where you can find me. And hope you turn in and hope you enjoy. Yep. And uh, everybody, find us on the Hit Rewind podcast. Uh, we'll find... Okay, you're going to notice a lot of episodes. It's complicated. I switched uh, hosts from Libsyn to Podbean, and it looks like uh, uh, Libsyn's going to erase about 450 of my episodes. So I'm collecting them all up, editing them down, trimming them, you know, whatever, and then packaging them in extra large, supersized episodes and putting them on Podbean because I'm not going to lose five years of work. I don't know what the fuck is going on, but it scares the shit out of me that I might lose them all. <laughs> sure. I hate that. I hate them. Yeah. All right. Uh, that is it, everybody. Have a good night. Have a good night, everybody.
Is that what you do? It's just going to be metaphors the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. Couldn't help it, especially after watching A League of Their Own again for after such a long time. It's like, God. Yeah, I'd seen it a couple baseball years ago. That's, that's uh, hey, everybody, we're talking about our uh, favorite baseball movies, and uh, this is just four of them. Trust me, there's a ton. It's maybe my favorite genre of uh, sports movies is the baseball movie. Um, and I would say it's probably more prolific. I think there's been more baseball movies than anything else. Basketball and baseball have to be real close, though. Or uh, basketball and football. Definitely. Yeah, I can only count at least, what, maybe two, three, three different football movies. There's The Replacements, then there's The Longest Yard. Well, there's a lot. There's Brian's Song, there's Necessary Roughness, uh, Dallas, North Dallas 40, Semi-Pro... Uh, the program, any given Sunday, uh, that's oh, any given Sunday, radio. Uh, there's one with Dennis Rudy. Clay. Yeah, Rudy. Uh, so there's a lot of them. Uh, that, that, and I was thinking that we should do this every time. Friday Night Lights. Yeah. Um, every few months we can do one of these. Like we're doing one now because we're missing baseball. There's no season right now. There's no season of anything. And, you know, we can do this. And then in September we can warm up for football by doing football movies. And there's another baseball episode for the World Series. Uh, and then, well, hell, it's, it's closer than every few months. It's like every other month. And then we got, like, uh, the launch of hockey and the launch of basketball. And uh, the Olympics aren't happening this year. So maybe we can do it. Uh, I'm sure there's got to be some Olympics movies. Are the Olympic movies? Uh, any Olympic movies that are good. There's Chariots of Fire. This, um, there's also like the off-key sports like Balls of Fury, Dodgeball. Uh, um, <laughs> basketball. Basketball, yeah. There's odd, you know, the ones that uh, are kind of off the beaten path. Um, you may say basketball is made up, and I will tell you, yeah, we made it up when I was in uh, seventh grade in, in our backyard. Um Fuck you, Zucker Brothers. I'm suing you for all 12 bucks you made off that movie. <laughs> oh, wait. Wasn't it like uh, the plot of it was uh, they basically took the same plot from, uh, oh, gosh, Robert Redford, Glenn Close. Oh, The Natural. The Natural, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there, yeah, are, the- there, there are elements of The Natural uh, definitely in basketball. It's a spoof of that, too. Uh, and, that, and, and The Natural is the one we haven't covered in this episode. So, uh <clears throat> Let's get our. Uh, I, you know, I would love sometime if we just improved an entire baseball game. We just made up players. We made up the whole thing. Just you and I, just screwing around, just pretending to call a baseball game that doesn't exist. Since there are no games, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like it, it. It is kind of a bummer. I mean, it's you know not to be able to see the Giants play every day. Yeah, it's it's but, different for you but, than it is for me because in Oregon we have no professional sports, uh, a professional baseball team. And uh, it kind of blows because you have the luxury of having San Francisco Giants and um, what is that it? Oh yeah, Oakland, uh, Oakland A's. Yeah, so you got those really close by. We all have minor league teams. I have literally. There's a baseball stadium right down the road. It's a Triple A ball team called the Volcanoes, the Kaiser Volcanoes. Uh, and then in Hillsboro, we have the Hillsboro Hops. And there's a long history of the baseball team that was in Hillsboro that. Uh, uh, Kurt Russell's dad owned Bing Russell and they made a documentary about Ooh. it on Netflix called The Battered Bastards of Baseball oh yeah I think I remember you telling me about that were those the guys like uh, roughhousers yeah well that and, and the simple fact that they didn't want to play by the league's rules they wanted to pay all these huge fees and they wanted to be their own independent thing and, and they were basically forced out 
So basically, what we got, oh. we got mostly minor league. The only thing we have up here that's major is uh, Trailblazers and um, until just a few years ago, the Timbers, the the Portland Timbers were moved from AAA into Major League Soccer. Uh, so uh-huh. we're lacking because we got Seattle just two hours away, and they have all the teams, all the fucking teams you can think of. Jeez. Oh my god! Yeah, no list. I mean, I can't even list them right now. Yeah, they plus we're huge world. college states. Uh, you know, we have Eugene. Uh, we have the Beavers no. and the. Um, oh god. The Beavers and. Come on. Damn it. I can't believe Oregon Ducks. Thank you, Oregon Ducks, son of a bitch. My own company's a sponsor, and I couldn't fucking remember. That's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> um, uh, my, but yeah, no, I can't believe I just said Royals. That's, uh, it's Seattle Mariners. The Royals are in Kansas yeah. City. Yeah, so for us, it's we're just lacking in major league teams, which kind of blows. But um, and, and what hurts for them is that minor league teams are basically surviving off of two jobs. They work something during the off season, and they get a pittance for the minor league. Whereas major league players, they're probably good for a few years. Oh yeah, no, I mean, shoot, uh, some will last like pretty much ever. I mean, look at uh, some of the players who've been playing like. Until like what past retirement age? I mean, well, Nolan uh, Ryan, A-Rod. fuck, he's a legend right there. Nolan Ryan is one guy who played so almost into his fifties. I think he was like forty-seven or something. Isn't Clemens pitch really late too? I think so. Yes, and then Justin Verlander still pitching. Yeah, and I was just thinking about that. This is kind of a thing that I like in baseball movies: is the older guy, the guy who's kind of at the end of his run. Um, which is different than most I think people forget in sports when you're 35 you're old hat if you can survive to 35 in a sport you're doing good and it's not golf golf you can go to like your 70 or tennis um, but in baseball and football and hockey and stuff like that once you get to 35 you're pretty much thinking about your last few years and that's more interesting to me I think than younger players so uh, I think the first movie I want to play, uh, talk about is, I think, the ultimate. This is the player hitting the end of its run, and I'm fascinated by minor league teams and the uh, hanging by a thread kind of idea that's in these movies. Slapshot is the king of those. Uh, we have semi-pro, but I think Bull Durham is the one that everybody thinks of when they think of minor league uh, professional sports. Absolutely, yes. And it definitely... Um kind of set the standard of like that kind of old warhorse like uh baseball player i mean of course the main character crash played by kevin costner like he's called up to this particular team to like you know temper this uh up-and-coming pitcher who you know needs some stability who's played by tim robbins is this where tim robbins and susan sarandon first met yep totally oh (laughs) that explains it wow yeah, it's uh, yeah. Ron Shelton had not directed before this, but he had been a writer uh, on Best of Times with Kurt Russell. And if I remember correctly, they were actually talking to Kurt Russell for a little bit about being in Bull Durham, but for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And um, uh, that's when Kevin Costner came into discussions. He had become red hot after the, the double whammy of Untouchables and No Way Out. And he was already signed to Orion Pictures anyway because of No Way Out. So I think this is really the role where it was on his shoulders. Like The Untouchables, it's a known franchise. It has a lot of uh, older actors around him that were established and uh, Brian De Palma directing it. And the same thing with No Way Out. You know, Gene Hackman was the co-lead in that. 
this is the one where he's number one on the call sheet. He's carrying the entire movie. Yes, Susan Sarandon was kind of known by then, and Tim Robbins was building his career, but this is really is, oh, Kevin Costner's a star now. He's an A-lister. Absolutely. And this is, of course, one of the biggest sports movies of all time. Like, what, 7.5 million budget and made close to 60 million? I had no idea the budget was that low, but that makes sense. You know, we talked last year. This isn't our first burst, uh, baseball episode. We... um we did the Major League Trilogy last year, and um, we were talking about the budget on Major League 3, and they said it was $20 million. And I found that incredibly hard to buy, considering there's no stars really in it except Scott Bakula. And the first movie cost only 12 And this was at a minor league level. So I have no, I'm sure whoever reported that on Wikipedia is, is wrong. It seems like it's really cheap and easy just to rent out these baseball stadiums for minor league teams. Um, you know, in, 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 during the off season, I mean, minor league is a lot shorter than major. Uh, most people don't know that is uh, minor league usually only goes from June to September instead of April to October. Right. Hmm. Is that well? What would you say uh, makes it most convenient for that? I mean, just to get the minor league players like you know loosened up in case they need to be called up to the majors. I, I think so. I really thought that they'd be starting a little bit earlier. You'd want them ready for the beginning of the season. But I guess as injuries happen throughout the league, you know they need to have their uh, AAA team ready. And at the same time, it costs a lot of money to keep them going. And, and, and ticket sales at minor league teams tend not to be the highest. Um, I always know there's a, there's a struggle for our local team, and uh, um, I think it's also about just not wearing out your players. Especially since, like this movie portrays, um, Crash is the oldest of the bunch, but I've seen minor league ball where it seems like it's a good percentage of older players as well. People who are kind of hitting the end of their career, or they're the kind of guys that bounce in and out of minor and major. Like they'll spend a season or two up, then back down, up, down, up, down. Right. Yeah, no. But for me, I think it was just mainly for like rehabilitation purposes, like when... That's true. Bumgarner had to get thrown out, or when everybody had, somebody had to get Tommy John surgery, right? They go uh, play through this just to keep themselves, you know, solid and um, back and get themselves back into the rhythm. Yeah, and and what I I think the most important part of Bull Durham is uh, the reality of it. He talks about going to the big show, but then when he kind of admits what actually happened. It's really heartbreaking. It's kind of a shock that they even kept him around that long since he's never really been to the big show. He got called up, and there was a storm, and, the, and then the plane couldn't land, and he never actually got to play. He got called up, but he never got to step on the field. And that's such a devastating moment for him, the heartbreak that you see in him telling that story. Because everybody else has built him up. Oh, he's the one who is uh, the one who's seen the majors. He knows what it's like, and no, no, he doesn't. Yeah, I know. I mean, shoot, he was only there for, like, what, three weeks, and that was it. Yeah. And I forget that not much of this movie is actually about baseball. It's it's about the relationships around baseball, what happens during the off time. Yeah, like the actual people, like, involved in that particular predicament. Yeah, it's... And, you know, as you can see, like, you know, Crash, like, he easily gets frustrated with... Um, well, he, he goes through a bunch of nicknames... From me all the way up to Nuke, um, and you know Tim Robbins' character, and like by the time like Nuke does get called up, like you can tell how like frustrated Crash is. Mainly not because that he's jealous, but that 
you know, nuke fucks around too much. Yeah, with that, and he's seen yet another person go up, wherein he hasn't. Right. But, again, yeah, because, uh, what's the name, Crash, like, he's kind of full of himself, and, you know, especially with what uh, Susan Strandon does to him, you know, they're officially a couple, but she has him go through, like, these, it, it's something she does every season, she, likes. She's a hotshot player, kind of gets him in this, like, kind of calming little spiritual kind of <laughs> routine. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think also then, her story is balanced out with Kevin Costner's story because she has now turned into the cougar, the MILF. Uh, and maybe she's aging out of that behavior. I mean, she's probably in her you know late 30s, whatever, and it's time for her to grow up and maybe... Settle down. Not that you have to. Jesus, it makes me sound like you have to be a homebody or whatever. No, but I'm just saying, like, going from man to man every year with no real emotional connection, I think to her felt hollow. Exactly. And then going, uh, what Crash is going through and how she is, it's like, my gosh, they couldn't be more perfect for each other. And then, of course, in the end, you know, Crash overcomes his jealousy, gives Nuke some great advice. Nuke and Susan Sarandon break up. And then those two end up uh, getting together. Like, she's, they settle down. And oh. ends up, like, with a slow dance in her home with the, you know, surrounded by candles. It's a very... And of course, you know, When I was a kid, I thought this was a dirty movie. I thought this was hard <laughs> R with tons of sex and nudity. And I saw it, and I somehow my brain forgot... That no, there. I don't think there is even a single second of nudity besides Tim Robbins' butt. <laughs> oh gosh, how can anyone forget that scene? That's like one of the most <laughs> memorable, crazy moments within a movie scene. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like Tim. It's like you know, everybody's kind of saying you're drunk right now. Like, do you <laughs> do you have any kind of nervousness? How how did you build up the courage, man? <laughs> Uh, this has Trey Wilson in it, and I think this might be his last role. And he became a star, not a star, but like a known actor later in life. Um, he broke out right before he died with Raising Arizona. And uh, it, it, it's a shock to me that he, he was Nathan Arizona. So looking at his career before that, it's all TV and low-level movies and stuff like that. But all of a sudden, he does Raising Arizona. And this is the last two years of his, his life. The end of the line with Kevin Bacon, the house on Carroll Street with Jeff Daniels, uh, Bull Durham, married to the mob, twins, Miss Firecracker with, um, uh, not Helen Hunt, um, Holly Hunter, Great Balls of Fire with Dennis Quaid, uh, and then that's it. He died. That's, you got, if you're going to go early, I guess the last two years have to be just flabbergasting. Those are amazing filmography. Abs, no, absolutely. I mean, gosh, you're, now that you mention his name, I remember who he is, and I was like, "Holy crap!" I always thought he had like a pretty dominant career, but yeah. man, I always, I always love it. Raising ears goes. What did he have on? I don't know. Some PJs with Star Wars shit on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like you said, he definitely had some memorable moments. Uh, oh, yeah, and Robert Wool was in this too. He was a supporting cast. Yeah, I think Robert this is his Wool first and... role, and then uh, Batman, and then I, I, I have no idea. He did that show Arliss, which was about sports for years. Yeah, he was like a sports agent. Um, yeah, and he also reprised um, the no- Alexander Knox role in the Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, special. No, what? Oh my god! 
I have to see the special. Yeah. I keep. I, I wish they would collect that all up so I could just see it one. Maybe they do on Netflix. They have it where you can just hit hit the entire arc. Yeah, they have like well, well, each series has uh, a new season up, and each episode's uh, in that one. And yeah, he's in the very first one. He it's it's like a brief appearance as is um, Burt Ward's, yeah. but still, it's very memorable. That's and nice. You can't help but love it. There's a there's a character actor in Bull Durham I want to I want to shine a light on because he only acted for about six years, uh, and his first role was Hoosiers. He played Everett, the star of the basketball team, and uh, after that he did Platoon and a very very good movie that no one can find. I have it because I like to bootleg some rare movies. It's called Undercover. And uh, he did Empire of the Sun, Bull Durham, and then that was basically it. Did a few TV movies, and his career was over. And I, I don't know what happened to him because I thought he was really good. I know it's just a shame. It's like you think like the appeal of Hollywood doesn't like apply to them, or you know the usual. Well, th- now this is me just being have. this is me being a little like neurotic and paranoid. Um, so if you don't know the character, it's Bobby. He is the first player cut. Actually, I think he's the only player that's really cut. He's the tall, beefy guy who's kind of balding, and I think that might be why he didn't get a lot of work. He lost his hair very young. Even in, in Hoosiers, you can see he's playing 18, but his hair is starting to go up a little bit. And, you know, fast forward two years later, and his hair is mostly gone. Um, and, and, and by the time he was about 25, he was completely bald. And back then, that was kind of unusual. Now you just shave your head to be a tough guy, you're good. But in the 80s, you had to wear a wig or something. You just didn't get work. And I think that's a shame. Oh. oh man, yeah, no, that sounds like something that stays in the fifties. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, well, is that? Yeah. Uh, well, I can't believe we spent this much time on Bull Durham, but yeah, that is definitely a pick for mine. It's, it's launch of his baseball trilogy. Uh, technically, he's in a baseball movie called Chasing Dreams, but he's only in a small part of that, so I don't count it. So it's this Field of Dreams and For Love of the Game, which we will probably get to uh, sometime down the road. Hell, we could have just done a whole episode of baseball movies with Kevin Costner. Now that I think about it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right because he was in like three movies. Yeah, and, and then there's one where he's a sports agent covering baseball and football. Called um, fuck, he did a lot of them actually. He did McFarlane USA for Disney, and then he did uh, what is what is the football movie he did with Ivan Reitman and Jennifer Garner, where he's a full. I have it. It's in my voodoo. He's a football uh, agent. Damn it! Oh I'll, my god! I'll look it up later. Um, but and, uh, I know, I'll have to look it up myself too when I get yeah. the chance. It's in there, so we'll, we'll discuss when we do football movies. But um, draft day, yes, draft day. Thank you. Um, the next movie is kind of in line with the thinking of Bull Durham, but it's what if a guy was successful and his career goes to shit, and he has to make up for it? And it's called Mr. Baseball. It's probably the only movie here that wasn't a big hit that we're going to discuss. But it was huge on video. It did okay in theaters. I think it broke even. But I, I am completely perplexed by the lack of success that Tom Selleck had in movies because it's unbelievably charming. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you kind of just want to, you know, smack his character a little bit because, you know, he's just mocking them and making fun of them. But Dennis Haysbert was definitely a more respectable guy. Right, well, I mean, that, that's, but that's part of the turn. He has to go from being an asshole you actually kind of despise him, and yes, he's got good one-liners because he's a smartass, but he's so full of himself. He's so lazy, and that's how he got to the place where he is in the first place because nobody wants to touch him. Yeah, he won a World Series four years prior, but since then, he's gotten real lackadaisical, 
and you know he's getting older and you have to be at the top of your shape if you're going to be entering your 40s as a, a baseball player and he, absolutely and he gets traded to japan because the only team that wants to take him because he's a name they can sell not that he's a good player but he's a name that can bring people in and possibly get a contract for selling it on television and his ego is completely out of control he's a complete tool and he butts heads with everybody and uh, Dennis Haysbert's the other American there, and he's the one who's basically been there his entire life. He never really got. Did he ever get to play in the majors? Did I miss that part of the story? Did he? He's never gone beyond AAA in Japanese ball. I might have missed that, but I'm pretty sure like he did have a career, and then he got traded to Japan. But he wanted to get back at the majors again. Yeah, and, of course. Which eventually does happen at the end of the movie, thankfully. Yeah, and he's very humble, and he uh, he works with them, and, and he learns the culture. He, he he starts to learn Japanese and their ways. And, and those two buttheads, because I didn't expect that. Dennis Haysbert is the only guy I can think of that is as big as Tom Selleck and as intimidating and, and could go toe-to-toe with him. Absolutely, yeah, you're exactly. Of course, the coach isn't going to take any crap either. I mean, no, like, no. Especially with uh, how they're... Um, Especially how the owner and manage uh, the ownership goes, you know, they brought him in so they could, you know, beat the uh, Giants. And just the way uh, the team that Tom Selleck plays for, along with, um, you know, the rivals, the Giants. I'm like, well, shoot, this is like, you know, Dragons and Giants. It's like it's Dodgers and Giants. Yeah, that kind of. <laughs> it's like that almost everywhere in the world. Like whoever, like uh, whoever does play baseball, they will have, they will mirror that rivalry somehow. <laughs> You know, it's, it's yeah, funny um, is you, my favorite baseball team and your favorite baseball team are two teams I think the entire world kind of loves. Like, there's some teams that no one cares about. They're just there. And only the locals seem to care. But for the Giants and the Cubs, it's universal. The Giants are one of the greatest baseball teams ever. I mean, 30 years of almost complete dominance. And the Cubs have always been the uh, the blue-collar, down-on-their-luck, ah, shucks kind of baseball team that got to win the World Series. And... Um, I think there's such a universal appeal to both of those teams. And I, I can see why when the Dragons chose the Dodgers look, because they're the underdogs. The Dodgers are in a very uh, powerful, rich city, but it's so focused on things other than baseball, because um, that's where the entertainment industry is. I, I think it was, Dodger Stadium. Yeah, and I think it was... I think it was genius to put the Giants versus the Dragons. It, it, it works, I think. Oh, no, it definitely does. Absolutely, hands down. Uh, but I will have to say, um, regarding the culture and, like, showing how Japan is, I'm like, well, considering how some of the game shows are, like, even, like, you know, flipping to the channels and then you get the um, ones dedicated to, like, Hong Kong and then they show Japanese shows and, like, okay, that's actually how it is. But it's just very enticing. It's a very, like, you know, wonderful culture. I would love to go visit. I would absolutely adore. I, I would, that's the only thing I think is wrong with the movie is that they don't spend more time in the city. But maybe they got edited out because sometimes extra material that's absolutely not necessary to tell the story it needs to be trimmed. Um, but I would have liked to see a little bit of him out in that in the city in their culture, eating at the restaurants, meeting the people, you know, seeing the the culture. And um, but most of take your shoes off. It's funny though, the movie is very personal If you look at it from the large scope of what baseball movies tend to be uh, This is like Bull Durham Where it's really tightly focused on uh, just a small group of people And their relationships together Baseball is just a second note 
in Bull Durham, but I think they really balance the personal relationships and the actual game in Mr. Baseball. Oh, no, I that's uh, what I saw, too, especially when he finds out the girl he's dating, who's that big, um, like, art... I can't remember exactly what she does. At first I thought she was a reporter, but it turns out, you know, she's part of a big uh, advertising firm. Oh, okay. Yes, that's right. That's what she does. Advertising firm, she was, like, going over all this business and whatnot, and then it turns out her dad... Is the coach of the baseball team who pretended that up. he could not understand English? That's one that threw me for a loop. Yeah, I know. Like, wow. <laughs> it was quite a funny moment, especially when all just like sucking on the noodles and. You know, <laughs> I have not laughed harder than when he's like, "You're supposed to slip your noodles for respect," and he goes so no, okay. over the top. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and then it's like when they're and it's like they want to both be poured sake, and it's like you know who's she gonna love it? Oh yeah, that <laughs> was like they're making her having her make a choice right there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a highly underrated movie that people should find, and um, uh, it's like the flip coin of what Bull Durham is. Precisely, yeah, and you know it all worked out uh, in the end for all of them. I mean, he got to go back; he was playing for the Detroit Tigers. Uh, Dennis Haysworth's character went to the Dodgers, you know. And, uh, yeah, of course, I mean, she ended up... Um, oh, God, I keep forgetting her name. Haruko? Haruko? Oh, gosh, I can't... Pro- I'm mispronouncing it. I'm terribly sorry. But uh, I, I know she uh, ends up moving in with him, and then she could just work while she's traveling. So I'm like, yeah. oh, hey, it all works out better for him. Well, also the fact that uh, I did... I've seen this movie maybe four or five times already, and I didn't realize until this last viewing that he is not a player necessarily they don't say it but he said they say he's the new coach um maybe he's the hitting coach or whatever oh. he is for the detroit tigers he could be a coach slash player which is like what they did in Slapshot. you can do both oh wow oh i did not know that but yeah still i mean he got to come back to the majors and go home he's still with her you know he has a place to go back to for sure yeah and he's Again, a better it was, player it was there's... overall an enjoyable movie yeah and it's from the director of uh, Fish Called Wanda, which two wildly different movies. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, our third movie is a bona fide classic and responsible for launching so many ripoffs. And it's the Bad News Bears, the greatest of all the kids' sports movie with Mighty Ducks being so close. But I can't count Mighty Ducks because I feel like it stole the formula from Bad News Bears. A little bit, somewhat, yeah, now that you think about it. Like a high-powered lawyer, you know, once was a great hockey player as a kid. He comes back, and boom, he has to deal with these little ragtag group of misfits. Yeah, and and they don't have any money, and then, you know, like the way with the Chico Bail Bonds, and they got to link up with the hockey team to sponsor them. So it's a very similar formula. But Mighty Ducks, because that was so successful and so cheap, we saw like 15 ripoffs after that. Oh, gosh. Which one was a, name one of the ripoffs? Well, Big Green is one of them. Little Giants. Oh yes. Um, yes. There's no there's no basketball one because I started thinking about it and I was like, ah, oh, that's too tall. Um, but of course, there's a sequel, Mighty Ducks. I feel like there's one for every sport though that there's a ripoff. Maybe I'm going too far. Maybe there's not 15, but I yeah. feel like there was a spate of them afterwards. Because even like heavyweights, for some reason, heavyweights feels like it was greenlit because of uh, Mighty Ducks. Didn't a few of the kids from Mighty Ducks show up in Heavyweights? I feel like they did. Yes. Yeah. Actually, yeah, no. Uh, the one who played Goldberg, he showed up. Um, oh, my God. Have you seen Goldberg? Have you seen him lately? 
No, I haven't. He, I, mean, I saw him in an episode of Las Vegas. No, no, no. He was arrested about three months ago because, and this is like his sixth arrest. He is a meth addict now. His face is completely rotted. He oh, looks like he's no. 50 years old. He's missing teeth. His face is all sunken like a basset hound, and it's oh. horrible. Damn, How do we get on this? Here. Oh, uh, let's get. Sorry, everybody. I forgot. Talking about Bruce, but here's the, here's a major difference between Mighty Ducks and Avengers Bears. One of them didn't have a racist little shit named Tanner. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, <laughs> Avengers Bears. Oh my God. During the seventies, I can't believe the shit that they. Well, hold on. The remake was kind of like this too, right? There was still a little shithead in it. Yeah, Tanner was still a little shit, but it wasn't racist. No. But do you do you like the remake? I actually do enjoy the remake. Oh, well, there was one guy on the opposite team who said something racist uh, to one of the kids, and then the kid jumped up and was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do, Cracker, and then he punches him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I really love uh, Billy Bob Thornton in it. Marcia Gay Harden's really funny. Greg Kinnear is great. Yes, a lot of yes. the jokes are repeated. And I never understood the point of a remake if you're just going to gut the entire movie. Uh, of the good stuff and then you know by the time you're done with it you're like this is just basically the same movie with a new budget um but i love it when he's dumping the raccoons into the fucking trash it's so disgusting and then he pours his beer into the same container oh. uh, <laughs> i know walter math it's like walter math like uh meets bad Santa. Like, you know exactly <laughs> exactly what it was but um, um but yeah walter Matthau's character of course you know kind of you know, past his prime, now he's just coaching, and, you know, again, kind of, like, brings together this ragtag, you know, team of misfits and shows that there's potential there if you coordinate them. Yeah. And, of course, he has to, you know, recruit a couple more people just to, you know, get the formula right. Well... Two mutant ingredients, a pitcher and a hitter. Well, you know what I just thought of? Major League is basically this formula. And same thing for replacements. It really goes beyond kids because the replacements is, again, a bunch of misfits that are called in uh, and have to be put together by a coach who's usually past his prime like the way it was Gene Hackman. But this one we got Buttermaker. Buttermaker. I don't know how to do a Walter Matthau. Can you do a Walter Matthau impression? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's going to be a tough one. All right. Gustafson. That's the only thing I ever say is Walter Matthau. Gustafson. What are you going to stop? You're still, you're still a pucks. Yeah, you're steaming your pants. We're going to eat broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a, Somebody stole our fish. My favorite my favorite story about Walter Matthau is uh, Jack Lemon and him were filming a movie, and Jack uh, turned around and saw Walter Matthau falling through the set, landed about a story <laughs> down, and, and hurt his back. He came down to Jack Lemon, and he said, Hey, are you are you are you comfortable? And he goes, "I make a good living." <laughs> <laughs> I say I make a good living, Felix. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's the formula of the weirdos mixed with a couple aces who are you know also misfits in their own way because they're disorderly or they got something about them like she's a girl and uh, they have a problem with that. Yeah. Tatum O'Neill is here's my problem. Tatum O'Neill is fucking amazing in the Bad News Bears. The two kids they oh, and and and, 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 and uh, uh, Jackie Earl Haley, Jackie uh, Earl Haley, both are top notch. The two kids they get for the remake are not actors; they're real uh, athletes, and they it just they can. I, I, I guess they're better than the average kid actor, but you don't carry a whole movie with average. Not these days. And I just thought they were kind of okay, and it just it, it didn't convince me. Yeah. 
No, sadly, the one who played um, uh, Buttermaker's daughter, the pitcher, she did pass away like at a young age. Oh no. Yeah, I think like yeah, no. Um, I think if, just just a couple years after that movie, it was a rare blood disease. The uh, I was thinking the Vic Morrow is the villain. Uh, well, not the villain, but the adversary coach on the other side, and uh, that's the role that Greg Kinnear plays in the remake. But um, I didn't know this until recently. Now, do you know about Vic Morrow at all? Vic Morrow, yes. I've seen him in a couple movies. I remember him in the Twilight Zone movie. And, and, he was that racist. Right. And, and that's, he was going through all, all the different eras like from the point of view of the, you know, the oppressed people. Right. And, and, of course, he died on the set of that, uh, sadly. But um, I didn't know who his daughter was because they do not share the same last name. And I was stunned because they don't even look alike. Do you have any idea who Vic Morrow's daughter is? Absolutely not, no. Taking a long slurp of... Anticipation. Jacob's waiting for me to tell him, and I'm torturing him for a little bit longer. (laughs) Tell me now! That's the top of the fifth, and Jacob's on the mound waiting for the the call. Uh, It is Jennifer Jason Lee. Oh, wow. Dang, man. I couldn't have guessed that at all. Nope. I had no clue. I found it on Wikipedia, and I was like, what? Um, I I really do believe... There's not a lot to say about Bad News Bears. I do remember... This is the weird thing, is I read the novelization. I did this a lot as a kid. If I couldn't find the movie, I would get the book from the library, and there was an adaptation of the movie. Um, I read it in ninth or 10th grade. Absolutely adored it. wow. And uh, I didn't see the movie for a very long time, which is weird. But um, there's three movies. There was the TV series, everybody. I just picked it up for like seven bucks. The complete series. Two seasons. And, uh, um, oh, Jack Warden from Used Cars and uh, uh, Dirty Work is the coach in that show. And it's Corey Feldman's first performance. Oh, wow. Okay, so I was wrong. In the remake... Uh, the actress was Sammy King Craft. She was actually killed in a car accident. Jesus. The main girl? Yeah, the pitcher. Shit, I thought she was still alive. I swear I looked that up last year. That sucks. Yeah, I know. It was terrible. But, um, like Blazing Saddles, you're gonna, if you have not seen uh, Bad News Bears, you're gonna have to prepare yourself for some unpolitically correct kind of stuff I understand world culture I understand it completely but sometimes we are too far over in one direction and I think it's like uh, it's a pendulum it's going to swing so right now we're making up for all the bullshit that we ignored for decades so we're going to the absolute extreme of wokeness and I think that we are going to pull back a little bit and be a little more reasonable. Not every joke has to be politically correct that it can test the waters because that's how you push comedy forward, I think. You you have to talk about the things that no one else will talk about. Comedy is like the only place for it. So a lot of movies you're going to start noticing, especially during the uh, – there's, there's the era between like American Pie and uh, The Hangover where they're really testing the limits of comedy. And some of it can be seen in retrospect as being kind of offensive. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, but Bad News Bears, especially, uh, you know, it being the 70s. Yeah, no, they had, back then they just didn't really give a shit. And hell, it wasn't even writ- written by Richard Pryor. That was the difference. 
hell, with Blazing Saddles, Richard Pryor writing it was what, you know, how they got away with it. Yeah. But oh, that's yeah. not like... As far as that movie, the complaints, there was only one complaint. It was when that horse got punched. People thought a horse really got punched. Oh, like, wow. You know, okay, so despite all the racial slang, you care more about the horse. I'm like, you assholes. Um... <laughs> Well, you, you know, both ideas can uh, reside in your brain at the same time. You can be upset about both. Uh, yeah. Here's something interesting: <laughs> is the writer of Bad News Bears uh, is Burt Lancaster's kid, Bill Lancaster, who only wrote a few movies. Uh, he wrote the third Bad News Bears, Bad News Bears Go to Japan, and then I kid mm. you not. He did The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, and then nothing else. Oh, he he never wrote another movie. Well, I mean, after The Thing, shoot, that's a masterpiece. How can you top it? Yeah, well, it tanked at the time. I think people forget that it it, it barely Damn made it. I really don't think it made its budget back, but because uh, it came out against E.T. and everybody was like, how dare you release this movie? Uh, gosh, this in, how you dare you release this movie? <laughs> oh, well, like, going against DT, yeah, you're screwed. Yeah. It's Spielberg. It's so offensive. <laughs> her. Um, but yes, uh, but again, the way Bad News Bears plays out, uh, yeah, it has its charm with all the kids, and then Buttermaker's just kind of redeeming himself, you know, like trying to get these kids on the right path, you know, especially with um, the, uh, the young, oh gosh, I keep forgetting his name. Yeah, the afro. Oh, gosh. That kid, um, you know, he was just so distraught after, like, you know, being on a losing team, and he thinks, like, he's not going to be good at sports at all. But, of course, Buttermaker tries to tell him, it's like, you're young, you still got time to develop. It's okay. Yeah. It's going to, you know, we can get, we can work on this. You know, this is when he starts to act, show that he cares. Well, it's and also the, the fact that he didn't give a shit, then he gave too much of a shit and was angry all the time, and then realized it's they're kids, this is a game, you, should, you can be good at it, but don't fucking lose your shit over don't get angry you know it's still for fun yeah and it, and it shows that in Mr. Baseball too at the end when the uh, coach kind of mellows out a bit yeah because you know as soon as the pitcher goes up he goes out and yells at the guy but near the end of the movie no same uh, again like the same kind of outcome heck even at the end like even when they were like you know getting outscored a lot in the last inning like oh well we'll come back and make it up because you know they're kids and hell the other coach um oh god why am I forgetting his name again what is it? What? The other coach, the uh, uh, the other team. Oh, Vic Morrow. Yeah, Vic Morrow. Like he straight up just like you know goes to his own kid and just smacks him because he takes it so seriously to the point where his mom takes him home. And of course, it was great to see that kid get revenge by like you know intentionally holding the ball and letting the kids run the base and get some scores. I'm like, yeah, well, shoot, that's what you that's what you get for caring more about the game than your own kid. I'm looking this up. I think I think the poster for um, for Bad News Bears is one of the greatest posters of all time. And um, Mort Drucker died last month. Mort Drucker was a very well known artist for Mad Magazine, but he also did a bunch of movie posters. American Graffiti, I think, was his first real breakout one. But Bad wow. News Bears oh, was another yes. fantastic. I, for some reason, I didn't think it was Mort Drucker who did did. If I'm wrong, correct me. I could have swore it was someone else, but um, I thought he did Animal House as well, right? Let's look. Uh, no, he did do he did do Badness Bears. I always thought it was somebody else, um, and I think he did do Animal House. But he was kind of like the go-to guy for about a decade doing these crazy posters, and um, 
he died at 91. He's one of the few classic Mad Magazine uh, artists that was still around. And sadly, Mad Magazine is not around. <laughs> the fuck, we live in a fucking world. There's no Mad Magazine. It's so strange. No, I know. It's absurd. It's sad. I'm like, I mean, maybe they have it digitally now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here, I'm looking at some of his posters. Uh, Inspector Clouseau, The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight, The Get Smart Movie, American Graffiti. Uh, I know, I'm pretty sure he did one that I was going to recommend to you. Um, Hog Wild with Michael Bean. I think it was Michael Bean's first movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it's a it's kind of a spoof of uh, teen competition movies. But Okay, so we're going off on a tangent here. I kind of wrap this up because i got another episode coming up soon. So our final yes. movie... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Hi, everybody. It's the final ending of the game. It's... Harry Curry here with a cool Budweiser and a piece of a cheese from the moon <laughs> that I flew up there to eat cost me nine million dollars to fly up there. Oh, that's a hard voice to do. Um, Harry, Harry, you scare me a little. Let's just get to the end. Let's see what's coming up the base. Our final movie is a league of their own, starring Sam Hanks. (laughs) (laughs) Absolute, again, it's an absolute classic. And, you know, speaking of Harry Carey, that little um, training session that they go to, the tryouts, it takes place in Wrigley Field. And honestly, that in Fenway... Like you can't get more authentic baseball stadiums. Oh, the ivy, ivy walls. Yes. Oh, behind, right behind a big, uh, covering up a big old wall of brick. <laughs> Which you know, I oh, yeah, that's got to suck. I, you know, I think it's really interesting is that I think Wrigley Stadium is the only stadium left in America where you can live nearby and watch the games for free. You can sit on your rooftop. Oh gosh, that's awesome. I would love to do that. Hell, even uh, when Candlestick was around, my dad. In the 70s, like sometimes they take binoculars, uh, they go up near where they lived and they could see the games. Uh, yeah. Say the Giants play there. That's pretty cool. It now, pretty now awesome. uh, what stadiums have you been to? I've only ever been to one stadium. I know, it's weird. The Cubs are my favorite team all time. And uh, Andre Dawson, greatest baseball player ever. Um, Ryan Sandberg right behind him. Uh, but for me, um, when I was a kid, my father worked for a newspaper and we got free tickets for baseball games. So that's the only reason I ever got to see baseball games is because we would drive down to Cincinnati. I know it's farther than Chicago. We lived in Fort Wayne. I get it. It does free tickets, people. Um, and we're <laughs> we're always trying to get games for the Reds versus the uh, the Cubs. And I saw quite a few games where they fought. I, I did see the Reds versus the Giants. I saw the Reds versus the Padres. I can't remember the other ones. But we always tried to go see it. But I've only ever been to Riverfront Stadium. Back when it used yeah, to flood I... all the time. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, I think the only two I've ever been to were Oakland Coliseum and, well, it's now Oracle Park. And I think maybe when I was a kid, I went to Candlestick. Okay. So, yeah, just those three. But, yeah, anyway, um, again, League of Their Own, and it was actually based off, you know, true events, you know. Yeah. And we were, uh, again, Penny Marshall. Yeah, you uh, and I geez. were discussing this. What baseball movies to talk about? And we discovered the last remaining uh, Peach uh, just passed away. Yeah, no, 103 years old she was. Oh man, I mean that. I mean, yes, of course she's gone. There's lots of mourn, but she lived a long. 
She lived a long life. Yeah, carry that legacy. Um, I, I, on this last viewing, this is not hyperbole. I think that League of Their Own is the greatest baseball movie ever made. Oh, absolutely! My gosh, and it's just one of the ones that's still just—it's again, it's a timeless classic. It stays relevant, you know. It's you know, it first takes place in the '40s during World War II. All the men were drafted and had to go to war. Therefore, they you know decided to come up with the women's league, and you know, you know, starts off with Dottie, uh, you know, an older Dottie, the main character played by Gina Davis, voiced by Gina Davis as well. Yeah, I was say if I never caught that before, is that that is not her in makeup. It is a just a woman who has the same build, and they dub her voice over. Exactly. Yeah, and they did look quite alike. I'm like, oh my gosh, did they put her in makeup? No. Like man, how amazing! Yeah, you know, even all the older actresses like did resemble uh, a lot of the younger actresses. So wow, they did a lot of great. Uh, they did a great job with casting. You know who I miss? And you know what I realized? You know who I miss in all of this? Ooh. Lori Petty. What happened to Lori Petty? For like five or six years oh. there, she was the go-to awesome lady in movies. Oh, do you think Tank Girl is what happened? Yeah, and Tank Girl's fucking rad. I love Tank Girl. I can't believe it bombed so bad, but maybe that just hurt her so much that she just kind of stepped away. I don't know. What were you going to say, though? I'm sorry I interrupted you. Again, uh, no, when it came to uh, Lori Petty as well, uh, that's what I thought it was. It's like, you know, because Tank Girl bombed, she had to step out of the spotlight for a minute. But, again, she was in Point Break. She was in... Free Willy. League of the Wrong. Yes, that too. Uh, in the army now. Yes. Oh god. <laughs> a Polly Shore classic. <laughs> Actually, no, I do enjoy it. I love Polly Shore movies. Shut up. <laughs> I've seen every single one of them in the theater. No, no, Shut up. <laughs> well, I didn't see everyone in the theater, but I enjoyed Polly Shore movies. His older movies. Uh, after in the army now, it just was like yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, I have I have a soft spot for Biodome. How do we do this? What do we do this every time? We only have so much time to record. Anyway. Okay, League of okay. Their Own. Here's yeah, why yeah. I think it's the best movie ever, or best baseball movie ever. Um, so it perfectly balances the character stuff with the baseball. The baseball is exciting. It's fun. It's a comedy, but yet it's a drama, but it's not too heavy on the drama. There is some heavy moments where, like, you know, the letter from the war office about a dead husband. Right. Yeah, Betty's husband died. Um, and it con- continuously moves forward. There's never any really repetition it, it, from the farm. And John Lovitz, some of these characters come in and out, and you never see him again. John Lovitz <laughs> is fucking killer in this movie. He's so damn good. But he's only in the first 20 minutes. And then Tom Hanks doesn't come in until two-thirds into – or no, a third into the movie. And he just knocks it out of the park, too, to bring a baseball metaphor into it. But he's also not the star. This never forgets that this is about the women. It never pulls any punches. It shows how they were forced to wear these stupid skirts that would shred their legs. They had to go to fancy classes. They had to look pretty. They wouldn't take the one girl who was extremely good because she wasn't pretty. And that's what they needed to sell in those fucking films that they would show in the theaters. But they only forced, you know, Gina Davis and Laura Petty forced them to take her. And... The camaraderie, exactly. the, the love that they all have for each other. And, and, and yes, the two sisters fight, and they tear themselves apart, but it's also because of love. is It brings them together, but also tears them apart. Because if they didn't love each other, they wouldn't have fought the way they fought. And the, the genius, I know it's probably fiction. I mean, it didn't really happen, but the fact that they get to the World Series and they face off against each other 
do you believe that Gina Davis dropped the ball on purpose? I think she did. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, no, that's exactly what I felt, and I thought she confirmed it. Because, you know, Kit was always known as Dottie's sister, and she was always just kind of in her shadow. I mean, she's a great pitcher. She stands out on her own as a pitcher, but she can't. She couldn't hit as well. Till, you know, near the end of the game, near the end of the movie, I was about to say near the end of the game, that final inning. Yeah, no, and then, of course, Dottie, it wasn't really much for Dottie. She did it all just for Kit. So, yeah, that's right. She yeah, sacrificed I mean, what she had in her life for Kid. Yeah, I mean, she thought her husband is dead, but turns out he's alive, and he's she goes back to Oregon. Fucking Pullman! <laughs> yes, Bill Pullman. I don't get quite a cast of quite quite a cast of stars in this movie. The no uh, is this the only good Madonna performance? Uh, I have to say, most likely. I mean, yeah, there was something she did with uh, Rupert Everett. Oh, the and next best thing. Game. I've never seen that one. I've heard Desperately Seeking Susan is really good, but I've never seen it. But I've seen, like, Shanghai Surprise and Who's That Girl and Body of Evidence. Okay, because there's boobies in it, all right? I was a young man, and I was looking for movies of boobies. Shut well, up. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, no, we all did. I'm guilty as charged. Swe- swept away in Madonna, and, I don't, and she was in uh, Dick Tracy. I just don't – I mean, she's okay in Dick Tracy. Yeah. But I don't think she's yeah, actually good. Uh, but this is a legit yeah, performance. No. I think she's very entertaining. Who got on my fucking nerves, and I can't believe she became a star after this, was Rosie O'Donnell. I could not stand a goddamn minute with Rosie O'Donnell. I know. I felt like, I felt like she was that typical, like, you know, New Yorker. I mean, yeah, she was a great player, but, God, you just want to punch her in the mouth. She would not <laughs> shut up, yeah. Did you happen to notice Tay Leone in the very end segment where the, Yes. I was like, wait, oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, she was one of the Racine players. In fact, even at the beauty school lined up, uh, the one girl just goes, mm-hmm, you know, nice, very nice. And then lovely, you know, of course, she goes to uh, Ellen, Ellen Sue. But, uh, yeah, the first girl she approves of was Tia Leone. I'm like, wait a minute, no fucking way. <laughs> but, yeah, again, those bruises, oh, you know where they, uh, they're icing that one girl's bruise? Uh-huh. That was an actual bruise. Like, a lot of those, girl, uh, a lot of those takes... They'd actually slide in those skirts, and they would just shred their skin. Some of that stuff was real. Even oh. Gina Davis confirmed it in 2013 in an interview. She's like, yeah, no, it was pretty crazy. <laughs> the uh, I, I sent you a pilot of the show, which I didn't get to watch. Oh, did I feel stupid? I forgot yeah. to watch it. Did you watch it? I did watch some of it, and I felt like, okay, I'm like, oh, this is kind of a cheap production. I wish they'd done a little bit better. Yeah. I'll have to rewatch it to get a better uh, review of it. Uh-huh. But I'm like, well, it does pay good homage you know of course different actors it's not Tom Hanks or anybody else but hey I think a few I think a few of the lower level cast members of the movie showed up in the TV show but most of them did get replaced um was it a remake or was it a continuation was it supposed to take place after that season I believe I think it might have been a continuation okay Uh, like I said I can't remember but anyway uh, again the way this movie ended too it was like it was just all it was just so much heart and hugs and kisses. Like, oh my god, everybody's everybody. Well, except for Tom Hanks' character, Jimmy Dugan died in '87. Oh my gosh, like '87 was when that uh, League of Their Own documentary premiered. Huh, interesting. Anyway, uh, yeah, you know, you see Kit and uh, Donnie talking again and hugging it out, and then you see the old, all the photos and that song that Madonna sings. It's like, oh, oh my god, that, that was everywhere. That was on the radio so much. When it came out, and uh, watch the video, it's a sad black and white. Get you every time. 
It's it's the one oh, yeah. moment where her music and the movies lined up because I really I like I said Dick Tracy I think she's just okay, and uh, I couldn't tell you a single song from Dick Tracy though. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. Oh oh, there's quite a few. Oh, I thought some of them were unforgettable. You know, as far as it goes. I mean, when it comes to singing and being a performer, again, Madonna kills it. Acting not so much. Yeah, uh, but uh, League of Their Own. Um, I went and saw it in the theaters. Um, I feel like I didn't want to see it. I can't remember. But I lived in a very, very small town where there was nothing to do. There was one movie theater with one screen. And uh, my friend Tony was like, hey, me and my girlfriend are going to a league of their own. And I was like, ah, sure, why not? I'll go. And uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. So why didn't I go see Captain Ron, though? That played like the next week, and I didn't go see it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's like I thought you'd be a Kurt Russell fan. You might I know, it. right? Well, I didn't discover my love for Kurt Russell until I saw Escape from New York a couple years later. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, that's a classic. Yeah, I think- again, a league of their own. Sorry. No, you're good. I was like, wait, before. I was afraid we were going to go on another change. But no, A League of Their Own is a timeless classic. And I consider it like one of, if not, easily one of the best baseball movies of all time. Is it the last time that Tom Hanks was wacky? I feel like after this is when he, he would be in movies that were funny, but he was never wacky. <laughs> like, he's not intentionally but, funny in, in Forrest Gump. Oh, no, 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 of course. Yeah, hell, didn't he win an Oscar for that? Yep. Oh, yeah, no. So, yeah, no. He wasn't intentionally trying to be goofy. But in that, no, League of Their Own, especially with the whole, the most, one of the most memorable lines in that movie, there's no crying in baseball. <laughs> and he's like, and he's yelling at Ann Cusack, you know. Uh, oh, my God, again, another Cusack. Not Joan, but Ann. Oh yeah, God, uh, so it wasn't her, though. No, no, it was, uh, oh, damn it, she was on Monk. She was on Monk the first few years. Um not busy. Yeah, it was Ann Cusack. No, Ann Cusack is the homely one that who, who uh, can't read, and she has to be told that she's on the team. Damn it! Uh, oh, I'm gonna look this oh up. I, the, I, I, I'm gonna get this. Ah, my brain. I, I of their own. Who is it with the worst kid? That girl had the most pain in the ass child. A little. Oh, that stool angel. Oh my gosh, you're gonna lose. Oh, that was another memorable thing from that movie. <laughs> People would. Oh my god, people would repeat that. So my my, much. my favorite line is uh that would bruise the hell out of me. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh it's I, I, it's I, Biddy Shram. Biddy Shram is the one who's crying. Oh it is. Oh god, I thought that was Ann Cusack. Oh my bad. But anyway. Uh serious <laughs> But no, again, like Stool Angel, uh Tom Hanks, there's no crying in baseball. All right, John Lovitz. <laughs> if I had your job, I'd kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. Stay <laughs> right here, see if I can dig up a pistol. <laughs> oh, you God. promise the cows you'd write them? <laughs> the um, can I tell you? We we did this movie years ago, but my favorite performance of his is from Mom and Dad Save the World, and there was a moment where John Lovitz had a chance yes. to be a star, but it just didn't happen. But he's so fucking funny in uh, uh, Mom and Dad Save the World yeah yeah oh man yeah it's Todd Spango <laughs> Omar Tomash Todd's love for you is uh, what rhymes large <laughs> and then he says lar I, I love lar? I love when he goes in for the kiss he goes in for the kiss and then he's like there's like a little thing that he does with his lips like <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that weird ass awkward fucking tongue kiss. 
<laughs> All right, so that's it of this episode. Um, everybody, uh, obviously, will be back in the in October. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a World Series this year. We have no idea what's going on, but we'll discuss four more baseball movies. This time, we have to discuss either Field of Dreams or uh, uh, The Natural. I like to balance the comedies Absolutely. with the dramas. Absolutely. Oh, man. But, uh, again, A League of Their Own is that blend of all of them, funny enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I really do believe on this last viewing. And Major League was always my favorite baseball movie. It doesn't have the heart uh, that, that uh, League of Their Own has. And, and League of Their Own is very oh, funny. No. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, again, uh, Lori Petty and Gina Davis, again, they had all the power to them in that movie. Yes, definitely. Especially when it came to heart. Okay, so that's the end of this segment of Hit Rewind. Let's wait for another one. Thank you, Jacob, for this episode. Oh, you're welcome, Michael. All right, game's over, folks. Time to go home. <laughs> no, after this we have a doubleheader. Uh, I'll be with Rob, and we'll be discussing the action movies of 1981, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Eye for an Eye. Uh, fucking forgot already. Damn. Escape from New York, I think? <laughs> no, no. Uh, 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 I can't remember now. I hate I hate it when I fucking forget. I just I literally watched the movie last game. night. Hold on, it's uh, it's Southern Comfort and um uh, oh my god, and my memory sucks ass. Well, we'll find Very out the next sad. time. Uh, high risk. <laughs> it was high risk. A really really underrated underrated action movie, James Brolin, and uh, that'll be our next. But first.
After these messages, we'll be right back. 